I'm putting the phone in a bag here. We'll see how this goes. I don't know if I've done this before, but it's very rainy. Got a crack here. It's like it's like uh, Leonard, it's like Leonard Cohen said. Uh, there's a crack in everything, and that's how the light gets in. There's a crack in my phone, and that's how the rain gets in. Taking a little walk, just feel like shit. Need to get some air, even though it's rainy. You know, I was thinking about the willingness, the willingness to be wrong. You know, because, I mean, nothing makes people more uncomfortable than being wrong about something. Especially if it's something that you are adamant about. And uh, when you're... Especially arguing with somebody. I've found that there's nothing worse, but there's also nothing more liberating than realizing you're wrong. Because your initial impulse is to kind of, not necessarily double down... But to find the, almost a loophole to be like, well, no, actually, like, I'm still right because of this. And sometimes you find out that you are still right. Like, I've been in arguments before where there's a moment where somebody says something to me and I go, holy shit, they got me. You just, you're stalled because you're like, holy shit, they got me. And sometimes they do got you. But I've had this experience before, and not all the, not often, but where, where you think somebody got you. And then you think about it for a minute, and you realize that it, basically what it does is it forces you to think harder. Because you know you're right. And you, you end up finding a better argument, maybe. You find a better way to phrase it. It forces you to kind of tighten up what you're saying, tighten up your thought. But when they do have you, like when someone does get you, and it's not like I'm in arguments all the time, but I do enjoy going back and forth. I do enjoy debating, which is another thing that people struggle with. Even just a very light debate is too much for some people. They get emotional. They feel attacked. But, uh, you know, sometimes like someone will say something and they really do have you and there's nothing you can do. You're wrong. And it might not even be an argument. It might be, it could be uh, simply you had an opinion and information comes out. I mean, I think this happens all the time with the news and current events where you make an assumption or you get one part of the story and then the rest of it comes out and you're like, oh, okay. My assumption was wrong. But sometimes there's something liberating about that if you just walk right into it. Because it is, I don't want to say it's painful, but it's something like that. It's uncomfortable. And it's funny too, because you know we think of being wrong as being stupid when the two aren't directly connected at all. I mean, you could say that somebody who's stupid is more likely to be wrong. But I don't know. You know, I don't think of being wrong as being stupid. And there's all sorts of platitudes about that. How a sign of intelligence is actually a willingness to be wrong. And I agree with that. I think that's a platitude for a reason. 
It's like the platitudes about asking questions. You know, where somebody who asks questions is coming from the right place. They simply want to know. But no, we do feel, you know, because I mean, I, I've just, I think I've always been aware of it, but just the climate we've been in the last couple of years has made me so acutely aware. I don't know how much, I'm curious how much bag is coming through. Probably hear a little rustling. I don't know if it does anything to my voice. Probably makes my voice sound better. I'm probably meant to be listened to through a bag. But uh, the, you know, the climate in the last couple years, I've just noticed how much of people's thinking and how much of their dialogue revolves around, I'm smart, they're stupid. And when I'm really plumbing the depths and I read online arguments that other people are having, when I read online comments, which I find really interesting, I genuinely find that interesting, because these are people who are probably in a comfortable place, and they're probably in their house, they're probably settled down, and they're making the decision to argue with people. So they're doing this by choice. It's not like they're forced to. It's not like they're in a situation where they have to argue their way out of it. You know, they're choosing to engage in an argument online. That's why I find that interesting. It's totally voluntary. And I don't think they would even say that. I don't think they would admit that, that they're doing this completely by choice. It's like there's a magnetism to that. But, uh, you know, in watching that, it's amazing, amazing how much of that ends up revolving around I'm smart and you're stupid and, and and I'm not even stretching that's like explicitly what they say like it, when there's a disagreement how quickly someone goes you're an idiot listen moron and just speaking of online arguments I think that the uh, the unraveling of society revolves around lol I've never used it. I don't have a problem with people saying LOL. I remember the first time somebody used it. I didn't know what it was. It was when I first got a computer. I mean, I think I had a computer for a couple years. But it was, you know, when I first started talking to friends from school on AOL Instant Messenger. I was talking to a friend of mine who was a little more seasoned. And he, I said something to him and he said LOL. And I, I just, I sent him a question mark and he goes, sorry, just a bad habit. And I was like, no, no, I don't, the question marks because I don't understand. Like he thought I was giving him shit because people used to do that. They probably still do. They used to be like, you know, LOL, oh my God, like that's so, that's so stupid. But uh, I legitimately didn't know what it meant. I didn't know any internet acronyms or anything like that. And so he, he assumed that I was like giving him shit about using LOL, when in reality I truly didn't know what he meant. And he, and he was like, sorry, bad habit. And I go, no, 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 what, what does that mean? And he goes, laugh out loud. I still didn't understand. I didn't understand that he was, that that meant like, I'm laughing out loud. It still took me a minute to kind of process what he even meant. But you see where that one really took off. It's incredible how much that took off, considering how stupid it is. Speaking of stupidity, not that people who say it are stupid, just that, I mean, the acronym itself looks stupid, LOL, LOL. 
And then the fact that it means laugh out loud, it's silly. It's amazing that it took off and it's, you know, the most popular and enduring internet acronym, internet shorthand. Crazy. But, you know, with how long it's been around, I see it more often than not used passive-aggressively. I see it more often than not these days, I see LOL used in arguments. Like when people disagree, it's like it's used mockingly where like people will be having an argument and uh, someone will respond with LOL, no. LOL, you're an idiot. And it makes, it makes the insult so much worse because it's so effortless and it's always lowercase too. I have to make that amendment to my statement that I think society is unraveled not just because people use LOL in this mocking, passive-aggressive way. I don't even know that it's passive-aggressive. It's uh, kind of aggressive. It's, it's full-on aggressive. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's lowercase. Because it's like, because I realize that's a thing that people do too. You know, I've talked on here before about how it always, it was amazing in school how there was something uncool about, for example, like answering the teacher's question when they asked. And I felt the same way. Just on an intuitive level, it's almost like you were betraying your peers. Like not even just trying to curry favor with the teacher and be a teacher's pet, but it's almost like you're betraying your peers in some way. Like breaking some sort of code if you raise your hand and answer the teacher's question. And how it's almost like pretend like you don't know as much as you do was sort of the code that kids had. Pretend that you're dumber than you are. Like that was something in school that always blew my mind is there'd be some, there'd be a lot of people in school where they'd kind of act like they were dumb and they didn't care about school and then you'd find out that they got really good grades and they studied really hard. But it was, they, they kind of understood the code that it was uncool to know things. And uh, another version of that, well, then, uh, well, also in school, like, it was uncool to pretend that, like, you knew the names of people. And I, I used to do this myself. I don't really do this as an adult. Um, but uh, in school, like, a lot of people would pretend that they didn't know who their classmates were by name. They would pretend that these were total strangers. And then, like, if you're drunk in your hometown and there's a bunch of townies from your high school, everybody knows each other. When people's inhibitions are lowered, everybody knows everybody's full name. They remember, you know, interactions with them. But when you're actually in that environment with your peers, when you're in high school, people pretend not to know each other because it's almost like you expose your weak points to do that. And it also comes from a fear that they're not going to admit they know who you are. That's, I think that's more the motivation. It's not just that there's some sort of code that says, pretend not to know as much as you do. It's also this just mortal fear that if you know Sally's name and she pretends to not know yours or just truly doesn't know your name, it's humiliating. It's crushing. 
But yeah, all you have to do is like see a bunch of drunk townies. And they'll go up to each other in a bar and just be like, like totally, dude, dude, I loved what you said in, in Mr. Bondsmith's class. Dude, dude, remember when you said uh, blah, blah, blah in Mr. Bondsmith's class? Like, dude, that was so funny. Oh, and you have a sister too. You know, people will do that when they're drunk. Their inhibitions are lowered. But when you're actually in high school, you kind of just, you pretend not to know people. It's kind of like that effect of seeing somebody seeing an acquaintance at a grocery store and uh, last week you had a conversation at the bar they're a friend of your friend and you don't know them super well but you were introduced to them and you had a drunken conversation at the bar and then you see them at the grocery store a week later and you, you avoid eye contact and I mean sometimes that's because like you just don't want to get sucked into a conversation or you don't you, don't, you just want to stay in your lane because you got something to do. You got some shopping to do. But a lot of that's the same thing I'm talking about here, where it's also like there's this mortal fear. Like if you admit that you're aware and somebody pretends that they aren't as aware as you are, or that you're more aware of them than they are of you, it causes you to, you know, recoil. It feels like death. But the reason I'm getting into that is because I feel like it's kind of the same thing as the sort of lowercase lol, lowercase typing, where there's something human beings do, and it's been interesting to watch it online because it's almost like if you, if you seem like you're putting too much effort into something, it's almost like knowing too much or caring too much. A lot of this, a lot, the, the general theme here is you don't want to admit you care as much as you do, yet you do care. That's why it's, there's something kind of dishonest about all this, is that we live these lives where we don't want to let on that we care as much as we do. Because people will use that against us. And I mean, going back to arguments, going back to like when you're in an argument with some, somebody, you know they've lost the argument when they say, Dude, I can't believe you actually care that much about this. I mean, that's murderous. When someone's done that to me, I want to kill them. <laughs> I have this memory of, you know, take, I had to take the city bus to uh, this film class when I was in junior high. See, I remember everything. Be careful about me, I remember too much. But I had to take this city bus to a film class in junior high with a couple friends. We got signed up for this film class. It was during the summer. And these two friends would always team up. They would always team up. One of them was very much the subordinate. Like one of them was a guy where he was just, he was, he was just good at, at being a human. He was actually the same guy who introduced me to LOL, funny enough. LOL. But, uh, you know, he was a very charismatic, confident guy, and like this other friend was just totally his lackey. And uh, so as a result, like if me and the, the more charismatic guy, if we would get into arguments, which we would a lot, you know, he was a very smart guy, and he was fun to argue with, actually, the lackey would always take his side, which is always the worst. Like you respect the person who's confident and will challenge you. But when, it's, when there's a lackey involved, again, it's just infuriating. 
But we got into this argument because like we were talking about something and I used the word Celtic. And the one of the dudes jumped on me and he goes, it's pronounced Celtic. And I said, no, you know, yeah, that's the basketball team. I guess that's one pronunciation. But I was like, it's Celtic. I've only ever heard people say Celtic when they're referring to Celtic culture. But they, they just, but it goes back to what I've said before about, you know, bullying and kids giving each other shit, even friends giving each other shit. The example I, I always use is it's like if the ice cream man comes by and you're with two friends and they both get the, the rocket popsicle and you get the purple grape popsicle, they're going to give you shit about that. They're going to be like, oh, you got the purple popsicle, huh? Not even because purple's gay or anything like that, just the fact that you got the purple popsicle. It's why I say, like, yeah, you can stop kids from bullying, bullying each other about being fat or skinny or ugly. But as soon as you stop them from doing that, they're going to give each other shit about something else. And so this was exactly that on the bus where I used the pronunciation Celtic. Who knows what we were talking about? You know, we did, the thing is about these, these kids is, like, we had interesting conversations on this bus. <laughs> And I, I said Celtic, and then it was like, it's pronounced Celtic. And they, they just went at me about it, because they could. And the lackey, like, he had no business in the conversation, but he, of course, backed up the other guy. He was like, yeah, it's Celtic. And they, it was like, for part of the bus ride, it was just us arguing about how you pronounce Celtic. And it was so infuriating, which was their entire point. You know, that's what they were trying to do, is piss me off. But uh, I got home and I looked up Celtic. You know, I found like the, the, a pronunciation guide and I sent it to the lackey, like he was online. And I remember I sent him the link and I was like, dude, see, Celtic. And he goes, I can't believe you cared enough. I can't believe you cared enough to, to look it up and send that to me. And it was just, you know, I could have killed him. I could have strangled him. Because it was like they cared enough to needle me for half of a bus ride from Seattle. And I showed them that, you know, hey, look, Celtic. And I can't believe you cared enough. And you see that all the time. And it's like people use another person's effort against them. Because sometimes people do try too hard. Sometimes sometimes putting in too much effort is bad. Like, sometimes someone cares too much about something unimportant. But, like, we really, we're afraid of letting people know how much effort we put into something. And part of that is because people will use that against us. And I've noticed this with internet arguments, because I see where there's there, a lot of people, like, they're engaged, like, in the, they're voluntarily engaging in a pointless argument, but while doing that, which is, takes effort, they're allocating their mental resources to doing that. They're not multitasking, because if you're sitting there typing, that's where all of your focus is going. You can't argue and multitask online at the same time. But I, I see where people, they, they also try to communicate, you know, that, oh, I'm not, as, I'm not putting as much effort into this as you are. And it's sort of like a trump card. It's sort of like a, a way out. 
And you know, you know, when I notice, when I notice people use this like lowercase LOL dismissively or passive aggressively, it's sort of a form of that. It's like, I don't actually care. It's like Melania. I don't, I don't really care. Do you? That was amazing. Amazing. I don't, putting that on the back of her jacket. Amazing. <laughs> I don't really care. Do you? But, uh, that's kind of what people are trying to communicate. Like, I don't really care. I care enough to be mean to you, but I'm going to try to do it in a way that indicates I'm putting no effort into this. And you notice that all the time. Like, I notice it not just when I'm looking at these internet arguments. I notice it in just tons of interactions people have where people try to use, like, oh, I, I, don't, I'm, I don't actually care. I'm not actually putting effort into this. LOL, do you really think that? LOL, you're an idiot. And I was thinking like how infuriating that must be to be on the receiving end of that. Like if you're arguing with somebody and they just say like, LOL, blah, blah, blah. They probably feel the same way I did when that kid was like, I, I can't believe you cared enough. So there's a lot of this focuses on effort and intelligence where we want people to think that we're not putting as much effort into something as we are unless we're trying to milk that like I worked so hard I worked so hard to get to where I am you know that's when people milk effort or even exaggerate it you always know somebody probably hasn't worked that hard if they say that I've worked so hard to, to be where I'm at Probably haven't worked that hard if they're milking it that way. Um, but uh, human beings, man. <laughs> and uh, but you know, with it's like effort and intelligence are ideas that we are constantly consumed with. It's like sometimes you want to exaggerate the amount of effort you put into something because that means you worked hard and you deserve it. But at other times. We want to act like we didn't put any effort in and we didn't care because that makes us weak. You know, that not just makes us weak, but it exposes our weak points to other people. Because caring and putting too much effort in exposes your weak points. People can point that out. They can jab you there. And you see that a lot in dating. I mean, all, everything I'm saying here is magnified when it comes to dating. Where you never want to come across like you're putting too much effort in. And that's where all these little games that men and women play come from. It's like whoever seems like they're not putting as much effort in wins. And if you try too hard, oh boy, try too hard, and the other person notices that, they know. They'll take advantage of that. But, you know, it's effort and then intelligence where so much of the dialogue revolves around, like, I'm smart and you're not. You disagree with me. You're wrong. Therefore, you're not smart. Because we equate being wrong with being stupid. And maybe on an informational level, I mean, like I was saying, it's like maybe... Stupid people are wrong more of the time. But a lot of it also is, it's like, 
Who are you? Are you some source of original information? Are you the person who's discovering everything? Chances are, when you're right, you heard it from somebody else who heard it from somebody else. Like, how often are you actually right because of something you discovered or you came up with? And in this age of trust the experts, that's magnified. When somebody's like, I'm smart and you're stupid, what they're saying is like, I know the expert, I, I know which experts to trust and you don't. You're listening to the wrong experts. Which ends up becoming like this, my dad can beat up your dad kind of thing. And it's not like there aren't real experts who know about a subject. But, you know, these arguments are often about issues that really, you know, don't have a single expertise. They're conflicting opinions, but it's like basically whatever the consensus is of the people that you agree with or trust. And when you do that, like when you have your own experts who you support, how often is that actually because of the information they're communicating? And how often is it just because like they signal the right things? Or you feel like they're the experts of your tribe? And that's what a lot of this is. It's like everybody has their experts and they... Yeah, each tribe has its own experts, and so it's basically like, my experts said this. Your experts are wrong, therefore you're wrong, and you're stupid for trusting those experts. Which I try not to get into that. You know, I try not to play that game of like, oh, I don't, I don't trust your experts, because I have my experts. You know, I don't need that to feel the way I feel about things. But we do equate being wrong with being stupid, and when we are wrong, part of that fear, part of the mortal fear of being wrong is that we think it makes us stupid, or we think that other people will think we are stupid when we are wrong. But you have to have a willingness to be wrong, and there's, it's, liberating to, it's liberating to just walk full force into being wrong sometimes. And, uh, you know, because, I mean, that's truly the only way to learn. Again, we're getting into platitudes, but that is the only way to learn, is to be wrong about things. Because when you're willing to be wrong, you are willing to learn. Put that on your wall. Frame that one. And, uh, you know, the thing about intelligence, though, you know, as silly as it is, this whole idea that, you know, because, I mean, this has been going on for years, long before the current state of the culture war. But for many years, I've been hearing the idea that IQ, measuring IQ is bigoted, that there is a cultural relativity to intelligence and how we define intelligence based on the culture we live in. And, you know, what's funny is I actually agree with that to a certain degree. The way that we define intelligence and emphasize the importance of intelligence as it relates to IQ, academia, STEM, data, there's a lot wrong with that. And it's always this revelation for people when they realize, oh, like, some blue-collar plumber is the smartest guy I know. Because our culture revolves around this idea that IQ 
and academic performance is the definition of intelligence. When the reality is it's not true at all. You know, I mean, it's what it is is it's like intelligence and IQ applies to specific tasks. And we might live in a society that's become dependent on those tasks, but it's not what life is all about. Life doesn't depend on those tasks. You know, people who are good at science are thought of as essential to our society when they're really not. They have a function. They have certain tools they use for sometimes the benefit, sometimes the destruction of our society. But we don't depend on them entirely. We could live without science. And if you need a plumber, well, it doesn't really matter if he understands science or not, because he has certain skills and tools available to him based on those skills. And maybe somebody doesn't even have any skills, and they're intelligent in their own way that isn't based on, you know, this cultural relativity of, like, intelligence is your ability to perform well academically. It's your ability to process abstract ideas. You know, it might be somebody who can't do any plumbing and they can't do any science. Can't do any plumbing, can't do any science. Might be either one of those, you know. Someone can have, you know, a certain level of intelligence independent of that. Think about spiritual insight. You can't measure that. There's really no... You know, the only way that people really measure spiritual insight is whether somebody's lying or not. <laughs> That's what I've discovered. It's like somebody can have spiritual insight and basically your only evaluation of them is whether they're bullshitting you and trying to sell you something or trying to manipulate you. But beyond that, you don't measure spiritual insight the same way you would intelligence. Maybe wisdom, but you don't measure it the same way you would other forms of intelligence. And you know, a popular idea in the last decade, it's been around longer, but I first came across it probably about 11 or 12 years ago. I had a coworker, a middle-aged woman, who like we had a conversation and she was like, well, there's this thing called emotional intelligence. And she's like, my son, you know, he's not very good academically, but he's very emotionally intelligent. And that's become a big idea. It basically means you think you're empathetic. Emotional intelligence. I mean, there's something to that idea, but the way that people have become attached to it's silly. Emotional intelligence. Um, but that just shows you that people are like always trying to find their own way to be smart. Oh, I might not be academically smart, but I'm emotionally smart. And you see that with spirituality as well, where it's like, I might not be smart in these other ways, but I'm, I'm spiritually smart. But it's not total nonsense either, because it's, it gets to what I'm saying, that like, yeah, you can't measure those things in terms of IQ. And some people are adept. Some people do have something to offer in that way. You just can't get too invested in it and... and you know, try to define yourself based on that. And so that idea that, like, IQ is culturally relative and 
I mean, the, the issue I have with that idea, the way it's presented, is that IQ is racist. You know, I reject that. But we shouldn't define everything based on IQ measurement. It's just that that's... That, people with high IQs are good at certain things. And I was listening to Terrence McKenna the other night, and I can't remember the exact analogy he used... But he was talking about science, and I agreed with him wholeheartedly. His take on science was great, because I relate to his perspective, because Terrence McKenna isn't anti-science. He's not against the scientific process, the scientific method. From what I gather, Terrence McKenna was very interested in science, his brother too. But he was talking about science, and yeah, again, I don't remember the exact analogy, but basically the way he put it, the way I interpreted it, I think he might have said it was a tool, which, you know, obviously I agree with. But the way I see science is it's a certain form of software. Science is a certain form of software that you use for a specific purpose. It's not the whole system. It uses the system that already exists to get certain results. But people misinterpret that and they start thinking of science as more than just the software that we're using. They often think about it as the entire system. They're unable to really differentiate between science and nature. It's like what I always say on here is like, there are people out there, and I know this sounds absurd, and nobody would say this outright, but there are people out there, and there's a lot of them, who can't differentiate between NASA and space. Like, they forget that NASA exists independently, or rather space exists independently of NASA. NASA is the software we use to observe space. And without NASA, we might not have these cool telescopic pictures of space. Without NASA, we wouldn't be sending astronauts up into space. But it's a software. And NASA, of course, is science. It's the software we use to interface with a specific purpose, but it's not the entire system. It's not the system at all. It's a way of using the system. And you can't forget that. Like if you, if somebody who had never used a computer before sat down and you just opened up Excel and only allowed them to use Excel or their job required them to do nothing but access Excel and they weren't familiar with any other programs, weren't familiar with the computer itself, they might think that Excel was just what a computer is. Microsoft Excel? That's all there is. All there is on a computer is just spreadsheet after spreadsheet of data and information. They might get really good at Excel. That, that person might... They might be the, the best damn Excel user you ever met. But they're still only using Excel. And so that's kind of how I feel about a lot of what we do. Not just science, but a lot of what humans do. Is we're kind of like these people who are sitting at a computer and we're just using Excel all day, every day. And we've convinced ourselves that that's all it is. This one software program is the only way to understand the system. It's why the system exists, maybe. 
But we forget that that's just one program. And it's impressive in its own right. You know, it's impressive in its own right that we have, um, you know, that kind of software available to us that we've created that. And so, it, you know, I push back on these ideas that, oh, dude, IQ, dude, I, dude, measuring IQ is fucking racist. Dude, dude's fucking racist. You know, I push back on that idea. But I agree with the general point that, you know, IQ is just one way to measure certain capacities of the intellect that we can apply to specific purposes. But it's why, like, when somebody has a kid with Down syndrome, why they're like, he knows more than I do. He understands life better than I do. And someone might roll their eyes at that, but they're learning something through that person that the software that we use all the time isn't what it's all about. It's not like that person's just coping with the fact that their kid has Down syndrome and they love them. They're actually learning that that person has their own insight. That person is experiencing life in a way that is just as meaningful as somebody who has a high IQ or simply doesn't have Down syndrome. Because we're so used to viewing life through one lens. But going back to... I've always noticed this. It's not like this is new. But I've just noticed that in the age of coronavi, in with the hyper-politicization of virtually everything, so many conversations, so many arguments... So much animosity boils down to, I'm smart and you're stupid. And by calling you stupid, I'm clarifying that I'm smart. Or that I listen to the right smart people. And it's like, we don't seem to have a framework away from that. We depend on that for meaning, because our sense of meaning comes from this idea that either I'm smart or I know where to find the smart people. I don't sell drugs, but I know I know the drug dealer with the good shit. That's kind of what this trust the experts thing is to me as well, where it's kind of like saying, I know the drug dealer who has the good weed. Used to hear that, and sometimes it was total bullshit. Like back when I was a teenager and in college, you know, you'd... Um, You'd meet somebody who would, like, hook you up with their drug dealer, and they'd be like, dude, he's got the best shit. Dude, he's got the fucking best shit, dude. And you'd buy the weed, and, you know, it was weed. But it's not like it was truly any better. And, I mean, the dealers themselves would say that, like, dude, I got the best shit. That's kind of what it reminds me of when people are talking about, you know, trust the experts, and I know the right experts. I listen to the right experts. You know, it's sort of like saying, like, I know the dealer with the good shit. I know the dealer with the good shit. That's how I feel when they say it. Because it is giving them a high. When somebody feels like they're listening to the right person or they're getting the right information, it might not be a dopamine hit, but it kind of contributes to this, like, state of, like, mental highness or, um, you know, it, it does kind of elate them. You know, their ego, if nothing else. Like, even if they don't get an actual dopamine hit, 
from uh, listening to the right people, they certainly get it when they're confronted with somebody who disagrees with them and they get to feel right. Because that goes back to like feeling wrong and why that's so, why we're terrified of that, why it's so painful to be wrong is because it's a dopamine crash. You know, it's this dopamine crash. One second here. One second here. egg sound um you know it's it, it, when you realize that you're wrong or that somebody like gets one over on you 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 crash you sink but when you get one over on someone else you get high off that you soar but it's funny because you know sometimes you don't because <laughs> i mean i know speaking for myself sometimes when i'm right i feel worse even if it's a matter of principle, like even if it's not a matter of getting the right information. Just gotta make sure it's still working. We're still we're still working. Um, still recording. But you know, sometimes it's not even about information, it's just about like a matter of principle. Like I think back, there's that comedian Duncan Trussell who I used to listen to. He's kind of lost me in the last couple years, but I like Duncan. I've never heard his stand-up comedy ever. Never once seen his stand-up comedy, but years ago I listened to a lot of his podcasts. He's very into some of the same spiritual subject matter. I like him. He's a good guy. But uh, he was talking about a fight he had with his girlfriend many years ago where she wanted to put a Bob Dylan poster up on the wall of their apartment. And he didn't like Bob Dylan and didn't want to live in an apartment with a Bob Dylan poster on the wall. I feel the same way. It's not that I hate Bob Dylan. But I don't want to live in an apartment with a Bob Dylan poster on the wall. I completely understand where he's coming from. And he said it turned into this big fight where he's like, you're not going to put a Bob Dylan poster on this wall. And they got in this fight about it, and he won. And he said he looked in the room after their argument, and he, well, she had already put the poster up. That's why they were fighting. Like, she just put a Bob Dylan poster. I mean, I think family meetings are bullshit. And families who have, like, family meetings are a nightmare. I mean, I had a girlfriend who had, like, three roommates, and they would have, they would call them family meetings. And as you can imagine, it ended up being a bad fucking environment. Horrible. That's just how I know that I'm fundamentally different from some people, because there's a certain sort of person who likes the idea of that got to be another way to communicate this information other than a family meeting but uh, anyway you know if there were if there's one purpose for a family meeting i think it would be hey i'm thinking about putting a bob dylan poster on the wall let's discuss this but you know duncan was talking about how she just put it up and he was like that's not going to be on my apartment wall i'm not going to live in a place with a bob dylan poster on the wall and they got in this big fight, and he won. His principles won out. But he said after the argument, he looked in the room, and he saw her very defeated. Her body language was very defeated and downcast. And he saw her taking the Bob Dylan poster down from the wall, and he thought to himself, I'm a monster. What kind of monster am I? <laughs> but, the, you know, I understand it, though. I mean, that's, again, that's just like one of the, uh, <laughs> one 
one of the dilemmas of being a person because it's like if you love someone and they're a bob dylan fan you want to let them put a bob dylan poster on the wall you want that to be okay but the reality is you just have certain principles and you can't allow it but then when you see them with this downcast body language this downcast look on their face like watching her take the bob dylan poster down like almost voyeuristically yeah you feel like a fucking monster and i've been in that situation so many times with different people for different reasons and that's a matter of principle like that's not something like there's no rationale it's like, like some years ago my sister bought me that metal cats book for christmas it's called i think it's called metal cats and it's pictures of guys in metal bands posing with their cats and i mean i hate that shit but you know what i wasn't you know my sister was coming from a totally normal rational place and she was doing it because she loves me and thought i would like it like in my sister's mind eric loves cats and he loves metal why wouldn't he appreciate this and i didn't say anything to her you know my mom taught me as a kid like when i was a little kid and i first started having birthday parties she told me beforehand she's like you know if somebody ever buys you something and either you don't like it or you already have it pretend that you don't have it if, if you already have it or if you don't like it just pretend you like it and thank them and be nice because it's not about you you know the, the idea isn't all of, it's not like somebody giving you a gift it's very easy to think that's all about you and what you like you know she didn't elaborate on it but this is what she was getting at and she and i talked about this same idea later in life before she died but it's like the idea isn't that they're giving you a gift just like yeah they're doing it because they like you and they want to show that but it's also about them and i mean it goes back to that idea i've talked about on here before where like enlightenment isn't about the person giving something or the person receiving something enlightenment is in the exchange and so like that person giving you something it's not about you it's not about them it's not about what you're receiving it's about the exchange which is why, like, sometimes somebody will give you something and they're trying to manipulate you. They're trying to kiss your ass. They're, they're trying to do something kind of suspicious. And that's why you don't feel good about it. That's why that is not an enlightened exchange. But when someone's doing something genuinely, they're giving you something because they genuinely want to give you something, it's about them as, as much as it is you. And even if you're going to give it away... Even if you're going to, um, even even if you're going to sell it, even if you're going to return it or throw it out, you know it's it's also about them, and and you're strengthening your interaction with them when you take it graciously, even if you don't want it or don't need it or already have it. So it's like my sister buying me the Metal Cats book. I didn't think about. Trust me, I don't just sit there and think about this when it's happening. This stuff just gets built into you. But when my sister gave me the Metal Cats book, like I opened it and I was like, fuck. There's no way that I can rationally explain why I don't like this. I mean, I think all my friends would understand. 
Like thinking about my friends who are into metal. Like I know metal guys who would love that. I have friends who are into metal who would get that and be like, dude, this is so fucking cool, dude. Cats and metal, dude. I, I have friends who would say that. I know, I know people who would say that. But my closest friends who are into metal, they would feel the exact same way I do. I wouldn't have to explain why I don't like that. But when you do the equation, like thinking about my sister, very sweet. She thought, like, Eric loves cats. He loves animals. He's always taking pictures of his cats. He's into metal. He loves metal. He never outgrew that phase. Of course he would want the Metal Cats book. But the reality was no. Reality is no. I got it and, I, and my stomach kind of sank because I just thought, like, God, I hope... <laughs> I hope a friend doesn't come over to my house and see this, which is really an awful thought about a gift. But like thinking about it rationally, it's like a matter of principle. Like that's that's a principle I have. There's something about like that kind of humor. Like when people approach metal that way, it kind of plays into like heavy metal jokes. It's sort of this outsider take. Because the reality is everybody I know who's into metal loves animals. Everybody I know who is into metal is an animal lover. And they probably baby their pets. Like I have a friend who's a very serious metal guy. And if his cat his cat got hit by a car and she survived, but it's like he sent me a message that night and kept me updated. Because I cared. And he loves his cat. You know, so but at the same time I know that he would think a metal cat's book is silly and doesn't he wouldn't want it. And he would know why I don't want it. But the equation that my sister, you know, just intuitively did, which is like, Eric loves metal and he loves cats. This is kind of funny and cool. But for me, it's like this principle. And it's not something I came up with. It's not something I, I just like sat down and decided, hey, I'm going to have this principle about the way that heavy metal is presented. I'm going to have this concrete idea. One of my values, one of my Ten Commandments is like, you know, thou shalt not make silly books about heavy metal guys with their cats. It's not like I sat down and decided that. It kind of fits into this whole principle I have about my interests and in metal and the way it's presented. And it's not like something I sat around thinking about. But it's kind of like the Bob Dylan poster where like that's a matter of principle. Like there's no way that Duncan Trussell could have rationally explained why he's not okay with his girlfriend having a Bob Dylan poster. Because, like, you think about it, and it's like, oh, we share a household. My girlfriend loves Bob Dylan. She probably does all kinds of things I don't like. She has all kinds of habits I don't like that I tolerate. But there's something about a Bob Dylan poster hanging in my living room that I have to look at every day. And people are going to come over to my house, and they're going to see a freaking Bob Dylan poster. And I'm going to have to have a conversation about it. Or worse, I'm not even going to have a conversation and those people are just going to assume that the Bob Dylan poster is mine. You know, <laughs> just total neurosis. But even though he wouldn't be able to rationally explain that, I completely understand it as a matter of principle. And so some arguments are that. Some arguments are a matter of principle. And you wouldn't be able to bring intelligence into that. You know, you wouldn't be able to say, like, oh, he's smarter than she is. Intelligence isn't measured by Bob Dylan posters. Can't measure intelligence 
an IQ through a Bob Dylan poster. On an intellectual level, he's no smarter than she is because of that. But he has a principle. And that kind of plays into the arguments that take place in our society, especially these days, where a lot of them revolve around matters of principle. People have different principles. I mean, it's, it's, you see it in the abortion debate. You see it in cultural debates, political debates. I mean, at the core of politics, it's principle. You know, humans are, it's so hard for us to understand anything. Most politics are not a matter of somebody coming up with the intelligent solution to a problem or the most intellectually sound response to a, to the, to the functionality of society. Most of them are just matters of principle. It's basically how you feel about something. Because those things that I'm talking about, like Duncan Trussell and his girlfriend's Bob Dylan poster, me and the Metal Cats book, which is the name, that's going to be the name of my children's book, me and the Metal Cats book. It's about how gifts aren't about the item you're receiving. It's my children's book about how gifts aren't about the item you're receiving and how enlightenment is in the exchange. And you need, you need to honor that even if you don't like the gift. But no, these are, all, these are matters of principle, and what principle comes down to is, yeah, there's probably a rationale for it, but a lot of it is just intuitive. A lot of it is just how you feel. And that's where a lot of the political divide comes from, is like, people feel different. They can be presented with the same exact data, the same exact information, and often they are. But they feel differently about it. Like, you could see that in that big court case a few months ago, a couple months ago. You can see that in like the, the Kyle Rittenhouse case where a lot of people who fundamentally disagreed about the outcome of that trial basically knew the same information, but they felt differently about it. Their principles were different. And I mean, I think in that case, I don't know, I won't get into that again, but what it came down to is the people felt differently about it. And uh, what's bizarre about that, though, is that people have these disagreements over how they feel about things, and those form the principles they have, and they feel very strongly about their principles. Because basically, like a principle to me, and somebody might disagree with this, but like a principle to me, it's like basically, it's like your intuition meets information combined with feeling, and it kind of hardens into your principles. It's not one, it's not, it's not any one of those things. It's sort of the sum of all those parts and they kind of harden into something. Whether it's good or bad that they harden, it's just what happens. I'm talking about dickies here. No, but, uh, principle, your, your principle's like a dicky. It hardens. No, but, uh, it is kind of like, it, it's, it is like that actually. <laughs> It is like a dicky, um, but yeah, it kind of hardens into this thing, and and like, but we we tend to think of it as if like, it's still based on something that can be rationalized or something that can be broken down and explained, when it's really impossible to do that. Like, I wouldn't be able to explain why I feel the way about some of the things I do, and I try to think about that sometimes because it's good to do. You keep yourself in check. 
you make sure that you're not doubling down on something that's actually unimportant to you or something. You make sure you're not wrong. You have to continually make sure you're not wrong, which is why it's good to be willing to be wrong. But like, when we're having these arguments, because like oftentimes when I see these arguments between people online or even you know hear like the things people will say, it's not even just arguments, but in the age of social media, people will just make statements that are kind of incendiary and argumentative in nature. They're arguing with phantoms, though. It's still an ar- like even if you're arguing with a phantom who doesn't actually exist. It's still a phantom, and like a lot of when people say something, when they give an opinion on social media, or they're imagining a person, and it might be somebody they actually know, but it's more likely some sort of phantom composite. And so when they say like, "Oh my God, can you believe what these freaking Trumpsfeld supporters think about critical race theory?" It's so stupid. They're imagining a composite, and it might be based on people they know people that they see out in the world but they're kind of having an argument with those people when they say that they might not be in a direct argument but they're having an argument but a lot of that stuff comes down to principle and it's framed around oh these people are idiots oh my god these morons a lot of it's framed that way but it really shouldn't be people feel differently than them about it And you know, I think about people like Ben Shapiro, who I'm not a fan of. I also don't think he's that bad. But I'm certainly not a fan of little Ben Shapiro. I don't think he's dangerous. Oh my god, Ben Shapiro, that he's dangerous. You know, I don't feel that way about him in any way. He's just a pundit. He's a little like Jewish Orthodox conservative pundit. And I actually find him fairly obnoxious, but I don't hate him, but his whole his whole like thing is uh, his, his the quote that he's famous for is facts don't care about your feelings. Facts don't care about your feelings, and people love that. Like when he came up with that, I remember people were like, "Yeah," because the idea was that oh, liberals only care about feelings. But what are we seeing now? What are we seeing from the left right now? The left are the ones who are these fact checkers. The left are the ones who are saying, trust the science. They're the ones who have these data-driven narratives. And right now, I would actually say it's the right wing who's more driven by feelings. But not really. Not actually. Because everyone is. And that's kind of what I'm getting at. Is that... We feel something about facts. Like, what I was getting at with the left being way more focused on, like, trust the science, this is what the data says. Fact-checkers say, you know, it's not that that is actually any more fact-driven. It's not that that is any more data-driven. But we can see why when you frame things that way, it's not political. Whoever can take advantage of so-called facts will take advantage of them. And then they will turn around and say, hey, this is about facts, not feelings. So when Ben Shapiro was like, facts... Facts don't care about your feelings. At that time, the narrative was sort of like liberals are all touchy-feely empaths who base everything around emotion and how they feel, how things make them feel. That's why that was so popular with conservative types. Facts don't care about your feelings. But we can see where like whoever 
can use facts to their advantage, whoever can you know manipulate the idea of facts and data to their advantage will do that. Because the reality is, nobody is driven by cold hard facts. Nobody. No political party is more fact-based than the other. Because they feel differently about facts, even, even if there are objective facts. The different political outlooks feel so differently about those facts, which is why a Democrat and a Republican could watch the Kyle Rittenhouse case and be presented with the same exact evidence, and it's not going to change how they feel about it. And that's video footage. You know, that, those are facts, as close as we can get to them. It's video footage, you know, ballistics. It's all measured out for you in the court of law. But people still feel differently about it, because how do you interpret facts without your feelings? And you know what? Facts are actually meaningless without your feelings. Facts need feelings. So I always kind of rolled my eyes when, when the, the whole Ben Shapiro idea of like, facts don't care about your feelings, because it's like, well, now look who are the fact checkers. Look who's doing the fact checking. Neither of you are basing your outlook any more on facts than the other person. And when you do encounter facts, your feelings override those anyway, because we don't have any other option. You have principles. Your feelings, your, the facts that you pay attention to, they've all hardened into these principles you have. And so many of these arguments just revolve around principles. Which is why it's so silly that we dismiss somebody who disagrees with us as being stupid or dumb or a moron. Because it's not even about that. I mean, the whole idea of agreeing to disagree, people don't like that. Like, I had an argument with somebody about a year ago about some of these issues. And uh, I said, oh, you know, I, well, you're not going to change my mind. And I, I said that with no arrogance. Like, I didn't say, you're not going to change my mind in a mean-spirited way. I just said, I, th I think, you know, I'm realizing in this discussion that I'm just, I need to remind, like, the way this person was talking to me, I had to tell them, like, I need to remind you that I'm not going to change my mind on this one. This is something I've thought out extensively. It was about free speech. And I was like, you know, this is one where, you know, nothing you say is, nothing you're saying is going to be able to change my mind. And I didn't say that in a way that would inflame the argument. I said it in a way that would, like, try to, you know, bring the argument back down to earth. Because I was like, the way that, you know, we have fundamentally different principles on this subject, is what I was trying to say. And the idea of free speech is not one that I'm going to budge on very much. And the way this person was arguing it, she especially wasn't going to make me budge. The way that she was framing her argument, it was just very clear that there was no way. Like, she was not going to share any special insight, and I was willing to listen. But it's like she wasn't going to share any special insight in this argument that was going to change me in any way. And it's the longer it goes on, the worse it's going to get for that reason. So I just had to basically say, hey, we have to agree to disagree. And we did. 
But I could tell she didn't like it. Because she was trying to change my mind. And when someone says, like, well, let's agree to disagree, there's a lot of people who, who hate that. Because you're saying to them, you're not going to win. You're also saying, I'm not going to win. You know, it's not like you win the argument. But you, it kind of feels like you do. Like when you say, we're just going to have to agree to disagree, someone feels like you're winning the argument or you're getting one over on them because you're deciding to call it done. So people will turn around on that and be like, well, you're quitting. And that's bullshit. Because they, they don't feel like they're in control anymore. When you say, we agree to disagree... And I wish there was a better way to say it, since that phrase has become so cliché. But when you say agree to disagree, it's not like you're winning the argument by doing that, but you're taking control. You're reminding them that uh, we have different principles on this matter. And you know, some people are deliberately wrong. I've known people like this. I think there's a lot of them in today's world. I think it plays into the endless pursuit of jewels, actually. Like, I know people who are deliberately wrong, and I'm probably one of them. I've probably done this a lot in my life, where you'll, you'll take a deliberately wrong stance because it feels more unique. Like, you're willing to be wrong about something because it's so out there that it actually kind of makes you seem more unique or like you have an interesting perspective. You see this a lot with conspiracy theory. Like when people get into flat earth and things like that, I think part of the motivation is like, maybe there's a certain kind of person out there who genuinely like hears about flat earth and is like, yeah, yeah. But there's a lot of people who get into that kind of as a half joke. It's like when you half joke about something and then you repeat that half joke enough that it becomes a quarter joke and then it eventually is no longer a joke and you just believe it. It's like my friend, like the example I've used recently of my friends and I in high school smoking weed and like saying tight, dude that's tight, as a joke to make fun of the people in our school who said that, to make fun of the stoners and wiggers in our school who called everything, dude that's fucking tight dude. We did that as a joke to make fun of those people when we were stoned and would laugh about it. And then we did that a few times and then we started saying it. That happens with conspiracy theories sometimes. And I'm talking about like, we're in this age where everything's a freaking conspiracy theory if you disagree with it. But I'm talking about like what we would call classic conspiracy theories, which is like flat earth theory. And uh, there's a certain sort of person, like they get into that because like they think it makes them unique and they know it's wrong and I don't have a hardline opinion about the shape of the earth I gotta say that if you told me tomorrow that the earth is flat I'd be like cool it wouldn't make any difference to me it truly I mean like, like you think about what, how monumental that would be it would be so monumental if tomorrow we found out the earth was flat it wouldn't make any difference to me it truly wouldn't. I'd just be like, oh, cool. Well, now I know. So I don't have a hardline opinion. Because I see, well, that's the thing, too, is that, like, Flat Earth wouldn't even be as popular as it is if there weren't people who were like, you are a freaking idiot, and that's not right. 
It's the same reason I knew that Trumpsfeld was a legitimate candidate for pres the presidency in 2016. It wasn't when he announced himself, because when Donald Trumpsfeld announced himself as president or as a presidential candidate in 2015 or 2016, nobody took it seriously. He didn't have any support from the established neocon Republicans. It was no different than any time some whacked out celebrity announces they're running for president. It sounded like a publicity stunt, especially because it's frickin' Trumpsfeld. He's an absolute publicity hound. And I still remember when I heard it, they were like, oh, Donald Trumpsfeld's running for president. And I was just like, in, in one ear and out the other. Because I was just like, yeah, nobody's going to take that seriously. The reason I knew he was a legitimate candidate is when the left started hating him. I was having a conversation with my girlfriend at the time. And I was like, what about Trumpsfeld? And she had such a visceral reaction to it. And I started to notice that more and more. I would notice it online. I noticed more and more people on the left. I didn't know anybody on the right or on the center or independence who was like in 2015 or 2016, whenever he announced it, I didn't know. And I pay attention to people with those views and have some of them myself. But I didn't know a single person when Trumpsfeld you know, declared his candidacy who was like, you know what, I, I like him. I think I'm going to vote for him in a year. It was when the left flipped out about him. That gave him momentum because the people who didn't like the left were like, you know what? It's upsetting them so much. They seem to have such a strong opinion about it. And they're driving me crazy. I'm going to support this guy. But Trump said he didn't have support from the Republican Party. They were trying to do everything they could to drive him away. But what made him such a force to be reckoned with was the fact that so many people on the left started to lose their minds about him. And that legitimized him. There's this narrative that's gone on that's like, oh, Trumpsfeld, he, he became so popular because he riled up the white working class. I don't believe that. I mean, that ended up happening. But the initial momentum was very much based on the left's reaction to him. They legitimized him. And it's <laughs> the reason I'm thinking about that is because it reminds me of Flat Earth Theory, where one of the reasons why people double down so heavily on Flat Earth Theory is because people who disagree with that, which is everybody, try to argue about it. They think that they need to convince those people otherwise. Because I've seen this happen where, like, there was a guy that I was paying attention to. He's uh, fairly well known. He believes in flat earth theory. And I saw his development. Because he started out where he was a guy who was just, he would entertain conspiracy theories. He was one of those guys where he was in that niche. Where he would just, he would talk about the moon landing, JFK, 9-11, a lot of 9-11 talk. And then he started to kind of joke around about flat earth theory. But he started getting all this pushback. Where people were like, you don't actually believe that, do you? You know, here's, the, here's all the evidence why the earth is round. Like, people legitimized his half-joking view of flat earth theory. And because he, ha he suddenly had people arguing with him, he was like, you know what? I'm just going to believe in flat earth theory. 
He probably knows deep down it's wrong. I mean, I don't really know. I've only ever seen the Earth from where I'm standing right now, so I don't really know what the Earth's shaped like. Again, tell me it's flat tomorrow and I'm cool with that. I'm not invested in the shape of the Earth. Who do you think I am? But with this guy, with this, this public guy, it was interesting to see his, his evolution where, like, he's, he straight up believes in it now. But a lot of it came from the pushback. Where, like, it also makes you more unique. Like, even though deep down he probably knows he's wrong, it's kind of like having your own little niche. It's like a jewel. You know, it makes him unique to believe in Flat Earth. And a lot of people do that. I do it. Not about that, but about other things. I definitely used to do it more. Where I might take kind of like a, like a crackpot view on something. Because, I don't, I don't know, it was an expression of my individuality, maybe. It's an option. This is an option available to me. I can take on this weird opinion on something. But you know what? Sometimes I've done that, and I've ended up realizing that it's right. I might be like, you know, I'm going to think about this because it's such a crackpot view. It'll be interesting to take that view. And then I, I kind of actually look at it, and I'm like, you know, this isn't as wrong as I thought. But other times, you know, you actually are deliberately wrong. It's almost like armor or something. It's like, I'm going to be wrong from the start, and I'm going to know that I'm wrong because it's kind of funny. But this way, nobody can actually tell me I'm wrong. If I just walk full force into being wrong, nobody can actually tell me I'm wrong without losing. Because they're putting more effort in. <laughs> you can use that one. Oh, I, you know, I've taken on this view that's wrong, and it's fun to me. And it's unique. And the fact that you're upset about it means you're putting more effort in, because you care. <laughs> That's sort of the fun of, of deliberately being wrong, is you're having fun with it. But other people who are fact-checkers, fact-checkers, that should be a pejorative, anything should be. I'm going to start using it that way. Amazingly, I haven't seen anybody do that yet. What are you, some kind of fact-checker? What are you, some kind of fact-checker, huh? Hey, fact-checker. Sounds hateful. Fact-checker. What'd you say to me, fact-checker? Sounds very hateful. I like it. Oh, he's one of them uh, fat-checkers. Fat-checkers. He's one of them fact-checkers. I like it because if you say it fast, it does sound like fat-checker. Which is even better. That's even better. Fat-checker. <laughs> but, uh... Yeah, that should be a pejorative that we use against people. But uh, when you... That's, that's sort of the fun, though. The fun of it, though, is like... When you walk full force into being wrong, it's liberating and it can be fun. And people who take that seriously, who try to convince you otherwise, are going to lose no matter what. And they can call you stupid. Because that's the thing, too, is... I guess I'm, I'm almost home and I'm soaking wet, but, uh, you know, one of the funny things about all this, like, that we live in this time where it's like, we try to assert our own intelligence by calling other people stupid, by calling other ideas stupid, 
And as I've said before, it's like that's a sign that you have completely average intelligence, which is what people are scared of more than anything. When someone's like, oh, you disagree with me? LOL, you, you idiot. They're trying to communicate, like I'm part of the smart group. But if you do believe in smart and stupid and all that and average intelligence, there's probably a, a low chance that you are actually at the higher end of the intellectual spectrum. There's a very low chance that all of these people who are calling other people stupid, there's a very low chance that they're that high on the intellectual spectrum. Chances are they're of completely average intelligence. And that's why they're calling everybody stupid. They know deep down, it's not that these people are stupid, because it'd be very easy to be really reactionary about it and be like, oh yeah, the people who are calling everybody stupid are stupid themselves. No, I don't believe that at all. The people who call everybody stupid are of completely average intelligence. And that tortures them more than anything. Because look at what people do. Like getting back to what I was talking about, about kids in school, pretending they're dumber than they are. Pretending they're less aware than they are. And then thinking about people in other situations who want people to think they're smarter than they are. Trying to make people believe they're more intelligent than they are. What's funny about that is, what is the one place that nobody wants to be? None of these people want to be average. None of them want people to think they're of completely average intelligence. There's some kind of virtue in pretending that you're dumb in certain situations. Like, oh, I'm just dumb and I don't care. And there's a virtue in another situation where you're like, well, actually, I'm smart and I trust the right experts and I know how things work. But you very rarely see people signal that they're of average intelligence, even though most of them are. Because it tortures them to accept that. It tortures them to think that, like, you know, I might not be that blissful, dumb person who just experiences life as it is. I might not be that intellectual beast who understands abstract concepts and has high-level skills. Turns out I'm completely average. That bothers people more than anything, and it plays into what I've said about the middle class. Where there's this idea that, like, oh, the middle class is disappearing, and it's harder and harder to be middle class in America, which is true. There are very real political and economic factors that have made it more difficult to be middle class today than in past decades. That's true. But part of that is that the middle class has also willed themselves out of existence. Very rarely do people want to be middle class. Very rarely do you see middle class pride. And my experience growing up in a, I would say, a purely middle-class environment. At the time that I grew up in Kirkland, the spectrum, the economic spectrum, yeah, there were, there were some poor people. And there were some legitimately rich people. But I didn't really know most of those people. The community that I grew up in at that time, it was basically a spectrum of like lower middle class to upper middle class. Just about everybody that I knew, and I knew most of the people in town, you know, you grew up in a town like that, you know, you know, people's parents went to school with your parents, you know, you end up knowing a lot about people's families, and you get a feeling for how people live. You know, it was a relatively small community at the time I grew up, and, uh, 
that wasn't dog shit. Stepped in something. But, uh, just that feeling when you step in something. You just know it's weird. But, uh, you know, it's funny because I think back about growing up in that environment and it was like pretty much a spectrum from lower middle class to upper middle class and everybody was somewhere on that. But nobody wanted to be that. Like you had families who tried to seem richer than they were. Like around the time that I was a teenager was when Kirkland, all the old houses started getting torn down and people started building McMansions. And I knew some families who were middle class but they would build a McMansion and they would move into it and, and it, I mean, and they would buy these like, uh, whatever the new SUV was. They'd buy like a Lincoln Navigator. <laughs> Actually, I can't, I can't remember anybody driving a Lincoln Navigator, but that kind of thing. You know, people would buy these new fancy, like an Escalade or something, and they would, they would build these McMansions. It wasn't that they were that wealthy. You know, maybe to somebody who lives in true poverty, they're wealthy. But it's like, they, they were still like upper middle class, maybe at most. But it's like they wanted to give the appearance that they were wealthy. But then there were other people, too, who wanted to give you... They were middle class, too. But they wanted to give you this impression that they were more working class or poor. They kind of used, the, like, I worked for everything I got. They kind of used that platform when in reality they had comfortable lives and you see this a lot with teenagers and the identity crisis of teenagers and the way teenagers are just desperate for credibility where teenagers in that environment like growing up in a middle-class environment in school you really get to see this because so many kids from middle-class backgrounds in school either wanted to give the impression that they were wealthier than they were you know, they would wear designer clothes. They'd go to the mall, to the expensive clothing stores. Whatever those brands are called. Designer isn't what I'm looking for, but... You know, expensive clothes. They would signal that they have money. Even though they really didn't have that much money, they wanted to give the impression that they had money. But then you also had a lot of kids who were from the same backgrounds who wanted to give the, the impression they were tough super working class, even ghetto. Like, I've talked so much about the Wigger phenomenon, but that was a part of it, too. Where it wasn't just the kids who were full-on Wiggers, some of which came from poor, broken homes. I came to find out this one guy, though, he's dead now. My entire childhood, I thought this, this, this dude was uh, from, like, a single-parent home. I figured he was, like, a latchkey kid. Didn't know his dad, struggling to make ends meet. I found out after he died that his parents were married. He had two siblings I didn't know he had. Like, I saw his obituary and there were like photos of his family. And yet you never know what goes on behind closed doors, but it was like, for as, you know, as tough and ghetto as this kid tried to act, he came from a really normal, stable, middle-class environment with his parents together, and you could see their house, and it looked nice. Again, that doesn't tell us the whole story, but it, he definitely wasn't from the street. And so that's what I'm talking about, though. And you saw it, too, with kids who, who got into their own interests. Like, the number of kids I know who got into punk and stuff, and they were middle-class kids, too. 
you know, so it's like the middle class sort of wills itself out of existence because there's no pride in being middle class, even though there's a lot to be proud about. There's a lot, there's a lot to be proud about if you're middle class. But people who are middle class often try to identify with people who are wealthier than them or people who are poorer than them. Like the aristocracy is always proud of their aristocracy. Yeah, you have rich kids who pretend to be poor or tough. But there's a lot of wealthy people. Like the brief experiences I've had with truly wealthy people who are like in a class of their own is they're fucking proud of their of being aristocracy. Even if it's like this pseudo aristocracy, the brief glimpses I've gotten of those kids, they're proud. Like private school kids, there's a lot of pride. And then working class people too, like they're very proud of who they are. Like if they're legitimately working class, there's a pride to that. But the middle class doesn't have that. They're just sort of in the middle. And so they like to give the impression that, oh, I'm actually richer than I am. I'm fancier than I am. Or, you know, I'm grittier than I am. I'm tougher than I am. My life has been harder than it has been. And I think it's the same thing with intelligence, where people like to signal that they're smarter than they are, or they like to signal that they're dumber than they are. Dude, I'm just dumb. Oh, dude, he's so cool. He just, he just admits he's dumb. Dude, I'm so dumb. Oh my god, I'm dumb, but I'm cool. Because being dumb makes me cool, because I'm not aware of anything. There's people who do that. That was pretty common in school. I knew a lot of people who pretended to be dumb. But people, they, they pretend to be dumber than they are, or smarter than they are. Because it would torture them inside to admit that they're of average intelligence. Even though, like being middle class, it's a perfectly good place to be. Being of average intelligence, like, honestly, if you're of average intelligence and you're middle class, you got it pretty good. You got it pretty darn good, right? But that people don't like to live that way. They don't like to admit that. They want to escape it. Because they don't feel that it gives them a real identity. So every time I see somebody say, oh, do you actually believe that, you, mor you moron? Dude, that LOL, you're an idiot. I don't, he I don't hear that and think that person's smart. I don't hear that and think that person's dumb. I think, oh, that's somebody with completely average intelligence and they're screaming inside. <laughs> and, uh, you know, keep that in mind. Once you keep that in mind, you almost have some sympathy for it. You almost have sympathy for people who think that way.
where children can run free. So take.